0: First of all, I, I really want to thank you for being here with me this morning and to thank Donald because this is the first, the book was officially born last Tuesday, and this is my first talk. And it's an extraordinary way to begin to begin with the receptivity and the meditation and in this context. So I am profoundly grateful. It's an incredibly audacious courageous I'm not going to say crazy thing to do to write a book about beauty Um, I had wanted a big juicy difficult project for a long time and then I got one then I had to do it in the book of qualities I said beauty is startling she wears a gold shawl in the summer and sells seven kinds of honey at the flea market she's young and old at once my daughter and my grandmother In school, she excelled in mathematics and poetry. She was annoyed with the journalist who kept asking about her favorites, as if Beauty would have one favorite color or one favorite flower. Beauty doesn't mind questions, and she's fond of riddles. Beauty will dance with anyone who is brave enough to ask her. And this is a line, (laughs) Beauty will dance with anyone who's brave enough to ask her, that a lot of people picked up on. It was one of the lines from the book that carried... And it's a line I've given tremendous thought to. What I found is I also had to go back and look at the line before that. Beauty doesn't mind questions. And she's fond of riddles. And it feels like almost anything we say about beauty is partly true. Um, Beauty is endlessly um, paradoxical, mysterious. Donald and I, on the way out, were talking about some of the very simple beauties in Buddhism. There are also very elaborate and ornate beauties. I've just run into a friend that I was in Bali with in 1992, and when I was on the airplane on the way to Bali, I sort of had that epiphany that beauty is really everywhere. John Cage once wrote, The music never stops. It's we who turn away. I feel like the same thing is true, mostly true about beauty. The beauty never stops. It's always with us, but we turn away. But there are also many things in our lives that numb us to beauty. There are many ways that our culture is gotten coarse as well as brutal. So it's very um, fascinating to keep talking about beauty. In uh, the early 90s, I was recovering from a little tiny surgery, and I was lying around a little bit, and I heard this question, Who gave you your eyes? And for many years, the book Doesn't exactly start there anymore. It begins the second chapter. But for many years, that was the place I think of beginning. Who gave you your eyes? And in that question, there are a lot of questions. Questions asking who taught you to see? Who taught you what to see? What do you see? This is so simple. And artists talk a lot about seeing in a kind of slightly esoteric way, but it's very practical too. What don't you see? So this is a question that um, I've come back to over and over again. Who gave you your eyes? One of the um, first experiences of feeling like I was being given my eyes, and you can, perhaps more than me, make the parallel or the um, connective tissue with Buddhism. I was out, I was about 22, I was out at Point Reyes, and I was taking a nature drawing class. And the uh, instructor asked us all to draw daisies. We all know what daisies look like, you know, perfect little petals and everything. It turned out we didn't. We didn't really know what the center of the daisy was like or what the leaf form was like. And so we had 10 minutes to draw the daisy. And then he handed out daisies. This is extraordinary. This is one of the most vivid experiences in my life because all of a sudden to look at anything, it's extraordinary. So there was, you know, the irregular petals the real shape of the calyx, the real shape of the leaves. I I love that. That was an experience of um, the eyes of observation. In the course of thinking about who gave you your eyes, I think a lot about different kinds of eyes and different layers of seeing. We can see with the eye of the mind. We can see with the eye of observation. We can see with the eye of imagination. We can see with the eye of the heart. I've had a lot of fun. I've worked for many years as a poet in the school, having kids write about different eyes, the fo- um, the eye of the ocean or the um, whale's eye, and trying on different visions. So um, that first experience of the eye of observation was really important to me, perhaps because I, by tendency, relate more to the eye of imagination. So for me, Just looking and seeing what's there is so powerful. I've thought about, I don't know how many people in this room do some form of visual art, but I thought about that a lot because, in fact, my own art isn't really that literal a rendering of what I see a lot of the time, and it's a really good practice to draw more accurately, different drawing practices, but it's not the only kind of art that interests me. So a few years later, I was down in quite a few years later. I was down in um, Ben Lomond. I was teaching um, at the Quaker Center, and I asked everyone, this would be a wonderful thing to do if we were in a little different format, to draw a tree. And maybe it's like the inner tree, the tree in your heart. And then, since we were in this beautiful site in the Santa Cruz Mountains, to go outside and find a tree outside. And then either to draw that tree or to do a dance in front of that tree or to write to that tree. And then we sort of set up an exchange between the tree in the world, a literal, specific, particular tree, and sort of the inner tree that we maybe all have. And so these um, things are really interesting to me. Who gave you your eyes? It's like... Our eyes come from our family. Our eyes come from nature. Our eyes come from our friends. Our eyes come for some of us who have a great love of color from the colors we see. Um, We could even change the question, say, who gave you your ears for me? It was the I, E-Y-E, and it also goes back to the capital I of that first person pronoun. Um, I found a text in a very beautiful book called Catching the Light, And this physicist who's also very immersed in Steiner tells a story that I've never seen anywhere, I guess it's pre-Socratic, that Aphrodite, the goddess of love, made our eyes out of earth, air, fire, and water, fastened together with rivets of love. Astonishing. This is an astonishing idea that Aphrodite who is, of course, very trivialized in many ways. She's stayed alive through the, the ages, but she's been trivialized into aphrodisiac or Venus, venereal disease. You know, the, the love and the goddess is still here, and she was married to the lame smith who made all the tools. The idea that she would make our eyes to see... Be- the goddess of beauty would make our eyes... It's like we were made to see the beauty of the world. I love this idea, and I I love this idea. Beauty will dance with anyone who is brave enough to ask her. There, there are beauties that are in the proportion of a, a beautifully designed building or a wonderfully formed um, tea bowl. There are beauty, there are beauties that are in things, and I'm not in a place of such no preference that I I don't have things that are aren't ugly to me whether it's rudeness or the carpet in airports. I mean, there are many things that 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 become more beautiful with my attention, but there are also things that I think are ugly and, and out of balance. Um, but that so many things become more beautiful with our attention. That, that, that's one of the reasons I think so many of us do art, because it gives us the attention the time to look at something, whether we make it or whether it comes through on the page, that that looking is so powerful. I think the same thing happens with meditation and meditation retreat. Our eyes are cleansed, we come back and see more purely. So so there's a beauty in things. There's also this idea which is found in different places, but I love so much that there's a beauty in relationship, that beauty is reciprocal. Um, One of the ways I like to say that is the more we see and the more we're able to see, the more we see beauty. I don't have that experience all all the time, but I have that experience a lot. The more we see, the more we see beauty. There are so many ways to look at things. And so... To write about beauty, like I said, I I started with this how we see before I ever wanted to get to beauty. And what I'd like to suggest now, um, I, I don't know quite how this works, but I was discovering the verb look, look. And it seems like more than any other verb I've found in the English language, it can be paired with prepositions. So if you'd be willing to do this right now, Could I just ask everyone to do a few eye exercises, like look up, look down, look away, look through, we look over something we check it we look over the report look over we also overlook something we miss it look look ahead it's taking our eyes into the future and when we do that too much we can kind of pull them back <coughs> look in So oh. every looking is a different seeing, even in as simple a uh, situation as this. The the looking can get more more and more metaphoric, like that overlooking, um the lookout becomes that position or outlook becomes your viewpoint. So we we really do have choices of seeing um Rumi says beauty surrounds us. But sometimes we need to be in a garden to see it. And that garden can be a literal garden of lobelia and raspberries. I just had my first raspberries um, from my garden. Or it can be the metaphoric garden. So so I just invite you to think about um, expanding or um, opening up your eyes in a different way. Um, Donald mentioned practices, and it, it seems to me, like I said, the more we see, um, the more we see beauty. That talking about beauty, even if we can never say what it is, it may be as undefinable as as light. But talking about beauty um, brings it forward, brings it into the room, and the simplest. Way I I know to do that is every day to write down or to say three things. I picked the number three that are beautiful, and they can be things that you saw on the way to Spirit Rock this morning, they can be the core things in your life that are totally beautiful to you, maybe a grandmother's face, or I I don't know. Um, They can be, and often this is the most challenging things about ourselves. Um, In our culture, beauty has been treated in some ways as the most superficial quality, and it's taken me a long time to appreciate some of those surface beauties um, because I was hungry for depth and very um, alienated in some ways when I was young. But some of those surface beauties are fantastic, and they lead us to the deeper beauties some of them are silly Um, but the deeper beauties um, are are really sustaining I'm just going to wrap up in a minute but I like language a lot language is one of the most beautiful things in the world to me and both etymologies and phrase and sound of language but I like to play because I wrote a book of qualities and named all these qualities um, I like to reverse words so I'll say the beauty of wisdom the wisdom of beauty, the beauty of courage, the courage of beauty, the subtlety of beauty, the beauty of subtlety. So there's this um, ongoing um, dialogue that becomes possible with beauty. Like I said, the subject is extraordinarily mysterious and paradoxical and Elusive, but I also think it's really, really important. So that's a little bit of a introduction. Thank you.
1: So a few thoughts, and we'll be in the kind of a dialogue for a little while more. We were, I think, reflecting, particularly this morning coming over, that we actually had enough themes and areas, probably for four or five days, all day long. <laughs> So we were just going to touch on a few things. And um, one thing I love is just what you mentioned, that just as a very simple practice to uh, bring one into more contact with beauty, I was reflecting that in Western traditions, um, particularly coming from the Greek traditions, the sacred was understood in three main ways. It was understood through truth, goodness, more of an ethical quality, and beauty. All three were named. They were all, in a way, uh, avenues to the sacred, ways of, of connecting with the sacred within and without and in the totality. And I, w- I was reflecting some on just this very simple practice of reflecting on three things that are beautiful. I think it would be a wonderful practice, it it's, feels akin to the Brahma-vihara. Uh, you know, I was reflecting, I've been for the last months regularly doing a, a gratefulness practice where I just remember a few things that I'm grateful for and it, it's, it's very powerful for balancing the tendency of the mind just to focus on the negative, which I was certainly um, conditioned in various ways. My mind, okay, let's look at the problems. <laughs> Right, And so just the simple practice like the gratefulness, just actually bringing it into the mind, brings some further balance to really focus on what's wonderful or, or beautiful. <clears throat> and I think the beauty practice could be very, very similar to that. Uh, just to actually do a very simple practice, probably five minutes a day, just reflecting on what's been beautiful in one's life. Again, not to avoid the problems or the difficulties or the suffering, but I think as a, a practice, it w- it, it's very simple, and very powerful, and it would take one more into that connection with beauty. And maybe just two, um, two aspects to, to name that would connect this looking at beauty in terms of practice, and then we'll go back and forth. One is, the I think what Ruth was alluding to, that there's something in our meditation practice that, in, in the words of um, William Blake, it cleanses the doors of perception. Do you know that phrase in, from Blake? He talks about the need to cleanse the doors of perception. And I think we know from practice, particularly if we've done retreats, that there's a sense that... The, that but basically the doors of perception get somewhat blocked by a lot of thinking. <laughs> and so we actually can't really... Often we, we, you know we're at, we're at a sunset and we're thinking about the difficult interaction we just had, right? And I think the sunset doesn't totally get blocked out, but it's it's very different just to have this immediacy of direct perception uh, with anything. And uh, what we can experience in our practice is we, in a way, we work through that which makes it hard for us to see our experience directly. It, you know, Our practice can be interpreted as opening up our experience to really see more directly and to see what stands in the way and, and to look at that and work through it and deconstruct it and so forth. And so there's, um, there's this way that when we practice, uh, we're much more open to beauty. And I think, again, it's probably an experience that probably all of us have had in different ways to actually feel those doors of perceptions cleansed, as it were, and to actually say, oh, my God, look at this reality. This is amazing, you know you know, uh, it's that, you know, or the tree is amazing, or the, uh, oh my God, this human being just being very open is so um, amazing. It's that, I brought in that quote that I, I love from Thomas Merton, where he says, in a given moment, he says, then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of hearts, the depth of their hearts were neither sin nor desire. This is Christian language nor self-knowledge can reach the core of the reality. If only we could see, if they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other all that way, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem is that we would fall down and worship each other. That comes out of a sense of connecting with beauty. And so that's one thing, it's the cleansing of the... Doors of perception—they're really seeing more—and and when we do that, I think we just open up very naturally to beauty. I know in some of the retreats I've done, uh, I remember one of the first retreats I did. I said, "This is so amazing just to look at look at things." And I, I, I found myself saying, "Why would anyone actually even want to be an artist just to stay and with this direct perception of reality?" You know, art seems—and we can discuss this if we want—but art seems a little secondary. Why not just? be in the direct perception of beauty and hang out there. And it's amazing. And the other, the other piece that I wanted to mention before turning it back to Ruth is that I was talking about that um, I, I was reflecting on this, what I heard from the mythologist and storyteller Michael Mead. He said, the best antidote to fear is beauty. And it was pointing to the way that Uh, I've been coming to see a lot of our transformative practice as, on the one hand, going into what's difficult, going into our difficult patterns, much like Connie was mentioning, going into judgment, into patterns of suffering, seeing it more clearly, hanging out with mindfulness, with the hard stuff, and so forth. And that's really important. But it's also, I think, needs to be balanced by basically what builds up, what we could call it, resource- Builds up confidence, faith, a sense of wonder. Because when we just focus on suffering, we can get unbalanced sometimes. And we really need to have a sense of our practice as being balanced by that which leads us to a sense of amazement or beauty or awe, or confidence, or just the sense of love. Or just that's where the loving kindness, all of the Brahmavihara practices, the loving kindness, the compassion, the equanimity, are in a sense building us up, building resources that actually then. Help us, they give us power and strength that we can actually be with the difficult stuff, but they also give us another way of seeing things. And so I think the cultivation of beauty is really important as part of, that, of a, the larger sense of how transformation occurs, that we need that sustenance by beauty and goodness and knowing our own good hearts. We need that, as, and it's something that we can, I think, just focusing on that for periods of time can be really, really important in our long-term development.
0: So I have a quote in the book where a six-year-old girl is hanging out with a dancer in her second story flat, and the little girl looks at the sunset through lace curtains, And she turns to her older friend and says, now I know why you dance. It's an interesting question. There are aspects of beauty to me which I think we are very receptive. It's very worthy, to use that word, to be receptive to beauty. There are also beauties that invite us to respond by making beauty ourselves. Although, as an artist, I don't actually think I'm necessarily making beauty. I'm I'm in a process of discovery, but I think there are times that the beauty of the world invites us in our most vigorous, unclichéd way to celebrate it or to praise it, and that that can be a source of um, inspiration in our own making. It's not something it's talked a lot about, I don't think, among artists, but I think there that's such a big question to me, why be an artist? Um, so I wanted to respond to that. Um, there's also a way that when you're an artist, it's possible that you're, you're serving beauty. Um, I'm very big on this idea that beauty is reciprocal, that it dances between us. It's within us and within things, but it's also among us and around us. And one of my um, favorite stories when I was working on this book was a story that there was a Navajo rug maker and a patron came to her and asked her for a rug. And it came out very beautiful and her brother said, or her brother noticed it, and then the patron came back and asked for another rug and the brother said, this patron carries a lot of beauty that you would make such a beautiful rug it's not how we think of things being made but it it's with it it's this ongoing um blossoming invitation and and i like that idea um very much um shortly after my father died i had this very vivid dream that he came to me and said that beauty is deep harmony and there was more to the dream than that, but I was when I woke up, I was really excited that it wasn 't a Chinese Taoist master or a um, Hopi um, craftsman or anything It was my little father from Omaha, Nebraska who <laughs> grew uh you know all these exotic basils and walking stick kales and mm-hmm. orchids and and was not somebody who he had a profound kindness about him, but he wasn't somebody who would talk about things a lot. And the idea that... And that's that's an idea that's certainly in indigenous culture and it's in different places that beauty is harmony. But in my own um, dream language, it came to me through that most familiar, literally familiar source, that, that beauty was harmony. And... Um, there's something profoundly comforting. Beauty is very, very nourishing. Um, I have s- found several stories where people in um, extreme circumstances were nourished by beauty. Viktor Frankl in the in Auschwitz talked about seeing the sunset through this little tiny sliver when they were moving, or remembering his wife's face. And it seems like we can find that in um, these really extreme situations, but we sometimes forget it in the more mundane situations. I remember a fifth grade teacher I was working with saying in all the discussions about what education needs and parental involvement and test scores and everything, nobody's looking at the um, physical structures of the school and how the environment and the beauty. Um, Christopher Alexander has pioneered such wonderful work. I'm trying to think of the names of his most recent four volumes where he talks about, um, I think of his books as notes on the need for beauty and architecture. Um, but, but beauty brings out more beauty, I think. And when we're in places of harmony, I think that's why um, there was so much religious art in some ways. Um, it, it was. Some of it was really speaking from an authentic place about Things.
1: Yeah, I'll just say uh, two more things briefly, and then we can open it up. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 I like that sense of beauty leading to more beauty. I, 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 and I thought of two stories. How, how did you, did I say it right? Well, maybe no, maybe I, I just made no. it up. No, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. But that sense of, um, I was thinking of two stories that were uh, about um, how beauty comes into the world um, out of a kind of, um, well, out of a kind of purity of, of perception. One story is the story of the Buddha's awakening. From the on the night of his awakening, some of you know this story. It's very powerful, um, and it points to aspects of our practice that he was in this on the evening, the night of his um, awakening. He was being attacked attacked by uh, Mara, M A R A, who's the kind of the figure in. Buddhist tradition, who plays the role of uh, probably would be translated best as the devil or the the evil figure and um, Stephen Bachelor actually wrote a book a lot analyzing some of the text in which Mara appears but it 's probably it 's not evil in the same sense that it is in western traditions it 's not sort of independent because the that sense of um, that which causes bad things to happen is is always linked with ignorance in Buddha's practice. But anyway, I'm getting a little bit away. But Mara came to the Buddha and the Buddha was um, having this new insight and Mara said, I will try to, I will basically try to trick him and get him out of his state of awakening. And he brought a lot of seductive images, different kinds of desires uh, that he just tried to bring before the Buddha, um, luscious foods, um, images of beautiful women, and the Buddha just stayed where he was. And then he also started to attack him with arrows, started to say, let me bring in aggression, let me bring in negativity towards you and see what happens, You're, you know, you know. See whether your awakening is just dependent on being in a peaceful space. Let's see what happens when you get aggression. This sometimes occurs with us in our practice. Has anyone noticed that one? And so he was, how are you when you get aggression coming at you? And in this story, the arrows were shot by Mara towards the Buddha. And as the Buddha gazed at the arrows, they turned into flowers. I find that amazing, you know, that, that, that in, a, in a sense, um, a certain kind of purity brought um, aggression and turned it into beauty. You know, and there, There's a lot more we could go with that one that in, in terms of our practice. And the other thing is just a personal story. Uh, about two years ago, uh, I was near actually the end of writing my own book. Um, the one on um, the connection between inner work and social change and social service. And um, I probably, from one perspective, I should have just stayed and finished the book, but I said, I really feel like I want to do a retreat. And I've been thinking about this for a while. And so I went and did about five weeks of loving-kindness practice. And then then I should have got back and really got really back to work on my book. But after doing five weeks of loving-kindness practice, the main thing that I wanted to do was just to create more beauty in my home environment. And so basically for two months I primarily focused on interior decoration (laughs) and the creation of beauty. I think I'll stop there. (laughs) That was interesting. So, So any reflections or questions or... Yeah, please.
0: That's great. That's great. Okay, I'm gonna to have to do
1: this. You can just hold
0: it. There, there were a lot of reasons why art reacted against the um, beauty at certain times, and it became very important to be confrontational and truthful, and find the beauty of the truth, and be more um, alienated. But that's become a style. I mean, we've had a lot of um, variations now, and it seems like. We really need to um, find the nourishment sometimes I feel like we have this junk food culture with a lot of little gourmet at the end, and it's like where's the real nourishment and And I think um Ntozaki Shange, the playwright who wrote for Colored Girls who get the Blues, once wrote it's unfair for an artist to rupture a wound without bringing forth a little bit of healing i I just think there are many, many different ways to be an artist and um, we get locked on certain routes. Yeah. It's really great to hear that. Yeah. Yes? It's, it's interesting that you just brought up food when you were talking about schools. I'm in an organization called um, Society for
1: Mm.
0: Um, And our meetings were in Nashville and we did a tour of Nashville Children's which has beautiful artwork Mm. everywhere and interactive things and gardens and fountains and then we go to the cafeteria and it's beautifully decorated but it's Wendy's and Kentucky Fried Chicken (laughs) and it's junk food and it it almost makes the ugliness, I certainly see ugly (laughs) in that and it makes it even more vivid. Because of this extraordinary attention to beauty on one side, and then what literally is nurturing on a physical level is so abandoned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you want to comment?
1: <laughs>
0: one of the mo- it's true. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I I didn't want to do a lot of ranting about. Issues of appearance and issues that um, we've taken on in um, feminism, but I couldn't write a whole book about beauty and not talk about that. And one of the experiences I had was comparing some of the is- images of young women in fashion magazines, where they're pretty disembodied, with a book by a wonderful farmer named Michael Abelman. He did a book of um, pictures of farmers all over the world. And these people, are so handsome and so beautiful, people growing food all over the world, not to romanticize poverty or anything, but people connected with the life force in that way and real food. Um, those were some of the most beautiful pictures of people I've ever seen, um, farmers all over the world with their, with their, with their real food. Please, yeah. I was thinking of the story that we many of us grew up with, Beauty and the Beast, and the transformational aspect of beauty and um, the mixing that
1: happens between the beautiful and the the beast. That's that's interesting, and it's it's related to that story of the arrows turning into flowers. um, we were talk- We were actually talking about Beauty and the Beast on on the way over, mm-hmm. and um, this morning, and and also some of the. Um, I, I love that uh, what you just said from uh, is it Natasaki Shange? Yeah. That statement of it really shows the. Um, I, th- I think again, I think that it's something we do in our practice that when we work with. When we work with something very difficult or challenging, I think in a way, we transform suffering into beauty uh, that that there 's a way just just like the arrows getting turned into flowers that when and I, I was talk thinking of that story that i 've uh, used from time to time from uh, Rachel Naomi Remen, where she tells that story of the young man who lost a leg and who drew a picture of his um, condition at the beginning of his work with Rachel Naomi Remen, who was a physician who, were, who was working with people with cancer. This is a man in his 20s, and he drew this picture of a vase, and uh, it was just had this dark black crack through the whole vase, basically that here I am, I'm 24 years old, I've lost my leg, my life is destroyed. And as he did more inner work and going into the grief and going into some of the difficulties there, a lot of things changed, and you know, there's, it's, I think in the book, um, my grand, is it my grandfather's wisdom? Is that the kitchen name? Table wisdom. Is it? A, yeah, it's in the first book. It's in the kitchen table wisdom book, the story. And as he um, did probably a year of work, and then, he, and as they were finishing their work, she showed him that picture and he said, oh, it's not really complete. Let me add a few things to it. And he went and took the vase and he, basically brought in yellow around the black crack and these kind of f- flickering uh shimmering um symbols and he said it's through the crack that the light comes through it's through the through the wound that the healing and the beauty come forth and um that's pretty big yeah yeah please
0: Right, right, right.
1: She works in that, and I work in that with her. Um, And when you said raspberries, she's so proud of that garden. (laughs) Going to the garden, and she sees the beauty in raspberries. And I'm just grateful that I positioned my life in in such a way that she's able to see. I gave her those eyes. Right, Um, right. I'm actually, I have a chill just saying that because Mm -hmm. I, I just want to say that I'm, I'm grateful that I could give her that.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, thank you.
1: I also worked with that garden. Oh, do you? I have, I'm not, not at the present time, but I have in the past. Uh-huh. You know, it's, a, it's an amazing project. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Please. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, work at a, I'm not an artist at all, and I, but I love art. And I've positioned myself that I sell art for a living, a gallery, a wonderful gallery. And yet, uh, as uh, we introduce a new program of art, you know, each month we change the gallery up, and all of a sudden it's alive wonderful and then after about a week or so it kind of it fades into the background until someone walks in the gallery and they fall in love with something <laughs> and they bring my attention to it right, again, and then right. it kind of lives for me again so right. something about uh, a couple things, we can become kind of jaded to the beauty Right. right. the two, you know, that it takes others' eyes yes to, to enlighten us again to do all that.
0: I'm very proud of myself because this is my first talk and I didn't read from the book at all I'm just, like, amazed that... I I mean, I did work on this book for 10 years, and it's really in me. But still, I thought, oh, I need to get the words in my mouth, and I won't be able to be so... But there is something I... Well, maybe I won't find it in time to read it, but there is something I wrote about how do people who work in the same situation every day, whether it's a classroom teacher or a gardener, um, keep their eyes fresh? How do we um, do that? And we travel... To see new sites, but we also travel, whatever that means, however metaphoric or literal that travel is, to come away and return so we can see again um, yeah, yeah, that's great
1: it's really it really is um, but yeah, it's just just that um, one of the resources, of course, is our practice of just coming back to the present moment that that there's something I think. I remember some studies a long time ago. They were studies of meditators, you know, using their brainwaves. And they said that uh, in most people, when they look at something, there's what they call habituation. In other words, people get used to something and they don't give it the same attention. And, they, and when they actually did this with very experienced uh, Zen practitioners, they found when they were looking at a given object, there was no habituation.
0: And that's beautiful to me—the
1: taste. You know, like I I hear a lot of sight. Uh I hear beauty in the visual sense. I'm more into like music. Right. Um, Do you touch on that? That you know, the senses are all available to us.
0: you know, this book was originally 100,000 words, and it's been edited down to 63,000 words. <laughs> and I had to kind of claim what's my sources. My, what I know f- is from painting and from teaching poetry to kids, from gardening. I had, in, I had a question about who gave you your eyes. I had a whole poem that started the book that's been taken out, and then I went into who gave you your ears. And I'm only one person but one of the early re- readers who was helped—not early readers. One of the readers last spring who was helping me when I was doing the major hair cutting, like edit where you trim a little and then you see what you got, what's the shape, then you trim some more. Um, said I was using the word delicious too much. <laughs> so I—I I, I mean, so I think a lot of things are delicious, and I—I I don't think the senses are separate. And I do later on. One of my favorite passages in the book is when I write about the hand and how we how a body worker will see, touch the world, or as an artist, even though I'm very visual, I'm extremely kinesthetic, and I draw with twigs, and I I um, do have trouble being on the computer so much because I'm a tactile artist, and um, personally, speaking of myself, I don't think of music as, I think of it as the art form I know the least, but uh, um, intuitive acquaintance of mine has just read the book and she told me she read the whole thing out loud after the first few pages she had to read it out loud and it the sound really went between the two brains so I totally believe the senses are not separate I'm writing this through who I am so I strengthened amplified the visual a little bit at the expense of the others thank you for your question and I do think that color and sound are completely connected
1: Let's see. Well, two two short things to that. I I remember there were there was a an amazing exhibition about twenty years ago called the Spiritual in Art that some of you may have seen. And there's a this huge book about it, and a lot of that was about. I think it, is it called synesthesia? Yeah. Uh, which is about the way that the senses meld into each other at certain levels of perception. Um, and let's see. The other thing was I think that we're individual in terms of which senses sort of. I was going to say speak most to us. <laughs> but I know that when I've, been, when I've done long retreats, I've often, for me, sound is also really, it's maybe because my mother is here and she's a musician and it's kind of a musical family and so forth. But when I've been on long meditation retreats, I just hang out with sound sometimes for hours and hours on end, just listening, you know. And I think it's probably individual as to which sense we're kind of drawn to. Please.
0: Oh, yeah. And I meditate out there, and it's like, I take in all the beauty, and it's part of my practice. And then yesterday, someone, my neighbor, put up kind of this little barn structure that's now obscuring the view of the trees. <laughs> and I'm sort of heartbroken. Yeah. I couldn't sleep last night. Mm. And so you're saying, you said, the crack, through the crack, the
1: light comes through. And yeah. I'm saying, well, we're talking about beauty, and I've relied on this beauty for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is very mixed up with my practice. Yeah. And so could you speak to that. Yeah, that's a it's um it's actually a, a really pointed great question. Um and what occurs to me right now is that um and it's a, it's actually a really practical question because I think we all mm-hmm. each try to create almost like refuges of beauty, right? And yet they get um Raccoons come, <laughs> or or um, influences from the outside come, and and there's a way that we can't really succeed in having this isolated refuge of beauty. There's something that doesn't work, or that can get a little neurotic if we try to do that. And yet we need that. So it, it's there. Um, there are tensions there, but the um, but but that refuge is really really important, and so. I think I'm hearing just a lot of different pieces here. You know, on the one hand, the refuge is really really important and maybe moving make, you know, might make sense. Um, on the other hand, there's like there, there there are these I guess these different dimensions of beauty. There's, you know, there's the beauty that can really nourish me and be really important as a refuge, and there's also the larger beauty of my very being and how I work with everything, including losing certain beauty. Hmm. There's a, like a there's maybe we're talking about, like, there are deeper... I don't know, I hesitate to say deeper, but there are other dimensions of beauty which have to do with how... There can be a kind of beauty in relating to a loss of a certain kind of beauty. Is that making some sense? It sounds like surrender. Yeah, or that there, there's some... Um, it, I don't think this says any one which way whether you move or don't move uh, but there, there's I guess I'm just pointing to that there are different dimensions of beauty and there's one that has to do with our environment and what's there and there's another one which has to do with the continual maturation of our being and, and it's probably helpful to see them as uh, distinct in some ways yeah does that make some sense? yeah that makes some sense to you.
0: Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. There, there's. Um, I I say the more we see, the more we see beauty. But there are times when the more we see, the more we see ugliness, too. Or the more s- subtle we are, the more we do think see. Th- if beauty is in part a quality of harmony or balance, it's also becomes a. To me, it's a prime um, quality of the ecological movements that. Um, there are things out of balance and I don't... There's a lot more to say about that, but I just say that.
1: And just one thing. Uh, beauty just adds tremendous power to situations. I brought in a, um, a poster that some of you may have seen. This is the poster called The Cellist of Sarajevo. It was from the 1990s when Sarajevo was being shelled and the cellist sat in the bombed-out mm. buildings of the um, place where the notch, you know, the orchestra of Sarajevo performed, and he made a commitment to go there, even though there was a risk of snipers and so forth. And he sat there on a regular basis and played his cello mm. to create beauty in the midst of that difficult mm. circumstance. So it's like the act we could say the act of a bodhisattva. Yeah. She was talking about, a little bit about changing the doors of perception like you spoke of. Yeah. I mean that you, know, that you can, our perception of what's beauty yeah. can, can change. Yeah. Do, you, do you mean um, being, seeing something that formerly wasn't beautiful as beautiful? Right. Yeah. I think there are these different, we can kind of, sh- it's like shifting the focus lens, like we can look at things from one perspective and then shift from another um, and see, you know, um, that's hard, though, and I think, we, we, I think it's important not to maybe demand that. You know, oh, all this ugliness has developed around me. Let me see it as beautiful. <laughs> I mean, maybe we can get there, but I think it's also to demand that in some spiritual, I'm not saying you're doing this, but in some spiritual way could be not so skillful. I'm thinking, Ruth, we should probably take maybe one or two more, and then we, we, we want to give some announcements about your books okay. and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Please. Uh, back to uh, the
0: pretty uh, flowers. Uh, I did a series last year uh, in Watercolor of uh, one bouquet. Uh-huh. And I sometimes think we need that same attitude towards our bodies. That we, of course, there's the beauty of the the young. That's an incredible beauty that we could never take that away. But that's the only real physical beauty that's um, attended to in this culture. And and the, but there is just as much beauty um, in aging. That's a perfect
1: it's statement of it. Addresses your question, some, doesn't it?
0: It's easier for me to see beauty in aging than it is to hear it in noise. Where That's where I am, <laughs> honestly.
1: Well, I want to just end with a, a few small things. One is, um, I think, to remember that practice you offered us, which is really to remember three beautiful things every day. And it would be interesting to just... You probably have hundreds of beauty practices, right? Or ways, but it'd be interesting to just have a compilation yeah. of yeah. of daily practices that help us connect more with beauty. Okay. Um, but we have that main one of really remembering beauty, or maybe just hanging out with just saying, Okay, because I know I, I've done this sometimes as a practice, particularly when I was feeling a little down, like in retreats, I would just say, I'm going to just hang out with beauty mm-hmm. for the next two days. <laughs> And uh, so those are those maybe are two practices: one to reflect on, on three beautiful things every day. Another is just to say, for this period of time, I'm just going to be in the presence of beauty and be attentive to it. And that could be a 20-minute practice. I I'd imagine doing that every day would be very transformative. Even five minutes, I will just be five minutes with beauty and just be present. I imagine those two practices would really um, shift our lives. Hmm. Um, and then, the let's see Ruth brought I think a few copies of the Book of Qualities, right? The one with the the seventy four uh, right. characters, right. and and also um, a number of copies of your the book on beauty, right? And they're available to be purchased. Yes. Yes, they are, and they'll be over here, and you can come up afterwards, I guess. And do you want to? We'll leave an envelope. Yeah, we'll leave an envelope so Ruth can could talk with people, and you can just what self serve.
0: Okay, and I'm going to be at Cody's if in next Thursday night in Berkeley. Uh, there's a party at a place called the Dream Institute in Berkeley, a publication party on June 10th, and I'm going to be at Book Passage in Corte Madeira on a Sunday afternoon, and I believe it's August 12th. And
1: so next um, eight days from now at Cody's in Berkeley and the other one was on June
0: on Sunday afternoon June 10th I'm going to be at the Dream Institute in Berkeley Um, I tell a lot of dreams in the book and again it's the dreams of beauty the beauty of dreams that reversal Mm -hmm. and then I'll be in Corte Madeira at Book Passage in August August 12th
1: so I just want to express um, appreciation Um, it's been a beautiful morning <laughs> oh. <laughs> and uh did you tell w- us how much
0: the books are. The books are sixteen dollars. Okay. Quality
1: is just twelve. So I guess if people wanna you want can look at it or I guess a check or cash to Ruth Gendler. Yeah. Yeah. And shall we do you wanna say one last sentence or two about beauty? I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs>
0: I'm going to read the last paragraph of the book because I don't know what else to
1: do.
0: Last three, actually. Beauty connects us to what is holy. In the book of blessings, which is always a book of beauty, we praise the senses, we praise the soul. And it is the senses praising the senses, the soul praising the soul. Beauty lives in heirloom apple trees and seeds and the soft, luxurious wool called cashmere, in so many things that I don't often think about in my world, in motorcycle dealerships and junkyards, in hospital corridors, the tender, tentative steps of people walking after surgery, in the bird's-eye view out of the airplane, of the line of the river and the patchwork quilt of field and forest, in the exchange of snow between the top of the mountain, and the lowest floating clouds. We are travelers passing through. We belong to this place, to this time. Growing into ourselves, we meet each other. The angel falling in love falls into life. We find beauty in the garden and in the forest. Let us begin to celebrate the beauty of the world.
1: And may we offer what's been helpful from this morning. May we offer the, the beauty, the insight, the learning outward to all beings for their benefit, for their healing, for their coming more fully into beauty. So, Thank you very much, Ruth, and thank you, everyone.